0: Welcome to the programme, where the two-metre rule has been relaxed. Don't worry though, I still will be abiding by the five-second rule, the offside rule, and the rule of thumb. My guest this week is the multi-award winning broadcaster, political commentator and publisher Ian Dale. He regularly appears on news programmes on the telly and can be heard Monday to Thursday evenings on LBC. He does a great podcast with the former Home Secretary, Jackie
1: Smith. It's called For The Many. Here's one from a, a regular listener across the Irish Sea.
2: Good morning, Jackie and Ian. Jason O'Mahony from Dublin here. Thanks very much for a great podcast. And also uh, thank you in particular for the image last week of Jackie running around in her nighty which I think confirmed for many of us the suspicion that she does this podcast in a manner not dissimilar to the way Alexis Colby and Dynasty used to have for breakfast. All scrambled eggs, silks and suspenders.
1: God bless. Who, uh, misses? <laughs> Jason. Jason. He's got a lovely voice. Jason, if
3: you you would like to pop round and see me in my silk dressing gown and suspenders, please feel free.
0: (sighs) Ian Dale is on the way soon. I'm Graham Mack and this is The Pod 20, where I count down the top 20 podcasts based on downloads and your recommendations at thepodcastradio.co.uk. Number 20 is Talking Sopranos, the definitive Sopranos rewatch podcast. At 19, Sue Perkins, an hour or so with Sue's guest this week is the LBC presenter James O'Brien. And my guest this week is also an LBC presenter. It's the Evening Show host Ian Dale. He does a podcast with the former Home Secretary Jackie Smith called For the Many. Ian One of the differences between podcasts and radio is that in a podcast, you don't have to hit junctions at specific times for news and commercials. I always think that that hurts speech radio, because sometimes you can hear presenters dragging things out to get to the next junction, or even worse, rushing things or cutting them short to keep the show on time.
1: You are right um and I think particularly on breakfast and drive time shows that is the case you really do need to hit the junctions more or less on time unless you're in the middle of a a stupendous interview why why would you end an interview just to go to a break on time um it's less important I think I mean I I don't do it often but I will go over the top of hour sometimes if I've got a brilliant caller um, I, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to hit that top of our junction, whereas when I started, it was drilled into me that that is just a no-no. You ju- whoever it is, whatever it is, you hit the top of the hour. Um, does it really matter if I go to a break at 18 minutes past rather than quarter past? No, it really doesn't. Um, although having said that, you also have to look at it from a listener's point of view. And I, I used to be a Real 5 Live listener back in the days of Peter Allen, um, uh, Sheila Fogarty, Victoria Derbyshire, that was my station of choice. And it used to irritate the hell out of me when they would go to the half past news at 37. So I, did, I always have that in the back of my mind that as a presenter, you kind of want to do it when you want to do it. But as a listener, I mean, it's a bit like dogs. They like their routine uh, and listeners like their routine. And if you, if you change the routine, it's like any radio station where a presenter is let go. Somebody new comes in. It's as if the world had ended. Radio listeners are very conservative beasts with a small C. And when, when I moved to drive and Eddie Mayer came in, I mean, the, the emails, the texts, the tweets, and they went on for months. And I'm thinking, well, I'm still there. hanging on by my fingertips i'm still there um and it's it's quite gratifying in a way but um as i say people don't like change
0: yeah i'm not that keen on it either especially all the times i've been fired back to the chart now and at 18 it's murder in hollywood it's february the 2nd 1922 and all of Hollywood is about to wake up and learn that William Desmond Taylor, the most famous film director in town, was murdered in his home last night. The investigation will shine a light on some of Hollywood's most scandalous affairs, backroom deals and underground drug dens. This podcast is a real-life murder mystery about one of the most iconic whodunit cases of the 20th century. At 17... It's Eden's End, a radio drama from Sean Williamson. You'll know him as Barry from EastEnders. Something I meant to ask you when you were on the show last week, Sean. In 2017, you went on Celebrity Big Brother. Why did you do that? Tax bill. Was it? It, Really? It was a tax bill? I
4: mean, let's be honest. Let's be honest. If you see an actor of any calibre on there, it's got to be a tax bill. It has to be. You know, it's... I mean, there was a wonderful Scottish actor. I shouldn't say this. It's none of my business. I won't say his name. There was a wonderful Scottish actor on their two series before me, very famous, I won't say his name. Pfft, tax bill, and it? has got to be, or something, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah. But,
4: you know, I, it, I was I was lucky because I, I, I'd i watched it. I'd always watched it, and I'd experienced other people's discomfort, and there have been some real creatures on there, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Perez Hilton, I don't care calling him a creature, you know, and um, – someone called Bear, and do you know what I mean? And and, yeah. and they were real wind, proper wind-up merchants. Yeah. And they'd force several people to leave as opposed to, you know, people were going to hit them and saying, I've got to go, otherwise I'll assault you. Yeah. So I thought, no one's going to make me do that. And I was lucky. The youngsters gave me a, a, a fair bit of respect, actually. They weren't a bad lot at all. And uh, there was a, the late Derek Cora was in there, and Sandy from Gogglebox, and... Um, other people who have, of a similar age to me, so there were people I could talk to.
0: How, how like did you jungle. get on with, with Derek Akora? He was a bloke who used to pretend to talk to dead people.
4: Yeah, <laughs> uh, and they were desperate because we ended up friends, so they were desperate in, in the diary room for me to say he was a fraud. Oh, were I they? I just ended up saying, I believe Derek believes everything he sees and feels, and yeah. that's it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because I've always wanted, I, I mean, he's gone now, He's he, but I, I always wanted to ask him why he only gets possessed by Scouse ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway but, but he found didn't he find the uh, or he told you the name of the ghost in your house
4: yeah this is it we moved into a house and uh, it was definitely you know it was banging about you know I mean it was ridiculous for several nights we thought you were burglars or you know you hear stories of somebody still living in the attic do you know what I mean yeah and um, in the end it was quite clear it, it was a ghost I mean it is I don't care who, who laughs about it and uh, it was a noisy one it's not a poltergeist when I mean, you don't see things flying through the air but you hear them banging about and I was talking to Derek on the phone and um, he, he wanted me to be a guest on his radio show. And he said, you've got a ghost in your house. I went, yeah, he's a nightmare. He went, it's a she, her name's Rosemary. And this, you know, and he, you know, I don't know. And he said, it will calm down because ghosts don't like it. When new people move in, they have an upheaval. And then they settle down and we haven't heard a thing for a year. And there you go.
0: Well, there you go. So, but Derek's not visited though, unfortunately, which is a shame. No. Yeah.
4: He's a lovely man. Derek, you,
0: you're welcome on this show anytime. Just knock once for yes, twice for no. Get back to me anyway. Let's get back to the chart now. At number 16, today in focus from The Guardian, the podcast that brings you closer to Guardian journalism. At 15, Pilot TV podcast, which features Boyd Hilton. It's from the creators of the Empire Film podcast, and it's your spoiler-free guide to the essential new shows dropping each week. Boyd will be my guest in four weeks' time. Still no news from Derek? Okay. Well let's go on Zoom now then and talk to Piper Territ, the host of the Lockdown Lowdown podcast. Piper, I know you're a fan of the audio books that I narrate. You know, I've been looking at the list of books I can audition for. So many of them are dirty books. <laughs> You know, okay. where the picture cover has got a woman with a cleavage and two muscular men. Oh, I know exactly
3: the kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I just don't think I'm comfortable with that kind of stuff. No. <laughs> well, <laughs> when I did the daring. T- well, OK, so I, my, the, the yeah. closest I've got is when I did the Jack Wiltshire book, there's the awkward sex scene in the temple. Yeah. But it's pretty mild. Yeah. You know, it describes her boobs. Oh, okay. Fair and enough. I think that's as far as it goes. Yeah. The Darrington book went a little bit further. The really? That...
3: Yeah. The Spitfire. The...
0: No, there no, some, Spitfire, there's no, nothing in it. No, there's spitfire no, no. It didn't no, sound no. like in the no, care no. home. The, the no. Darrington book is the other one. The Darrington book is. is not much
3: spitfire. room in the Spitfire, either. No. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's possible. I don't, I don't know. Let's no. not go there. That's okay, not so sorry. Joystick.
0: Okay, let's no, get sorry, out of here. Okay. So right. Joystick. <laughs>
3: <laughs> right. So, Chops away. Okay.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, no, the Darrington book is what is known as a Regency romance. This was the okay. one where the bloke came back from the sea. The guy with the servants, and he was in Brighton. Oh yes, I remember yeah. now. That yeah. one, towards the end, got a little graphic, but nothing. Oh, really? Well, yeah. They get together, and you know, uh, yeah. he, you know, the taffeta is is, is ruffled.
3: And- <laughs> <laughs> You know, well, I can it's... see you squirming already. So, yeah, thought are yeah. having to do a and... body the
0: bodice opened and um, it oh. ended up um, way down
3: there. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. yeah. Can...
0: But there was, okay. but and that was as graphic as it got, which is fairly graphic in my <laughs> eyes. Yeah. So, I did look at one yesterday, one of these erotic oh, ones, yeah. because they are paying a royalty share plus, and this one was, some, was in the top bestsellers, so it would yeah. sell as well, because they have to do that, because you're going to get the royalty share, and it was paying a royalty share plus. Yeah. And so, I looked at the audition, and the audition was extremely graphic. Really? Okay. The language used, for instance, was- Oh,
3: really? Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So- I don't know
0: if I'm cut out for that kind of work.
3: Yeah, is it is it sweary sweary yeah. language or is it anatomical? It, it's okay. sweary language to describe anatomical. See, see you and, next Tuesday. That sort of thing. I didn't see that word. Right.
0: Okay. But there was there was the the f word was in there. Shocking. Yeah. But Oof. it was not used as an adjective. It was used as a description of a procedure.
3: Right. Okay. I guess you sure. know what I mean. Yeah. Yes, and so I don't, know, I don't know if I'm caught out for that. I just yeah, I know what you mean because you got you've got to well you've got to give your all to it. We've got to suspend the disbelief and yeah, oh yeah, out, you've got to you? be. There. And, so yeah. I did have a
0: thought in the night, but I'm not sure if I want to go this way. Mm. You because one of my issues is yeah, if I do a kids' book, which I want <laughs> to do the kids' books, <laughs> I do want <laughs> to do the kids' books, right? Yeah, yeah, you're gonna yeah, and you my name. Part. My name is on the cover of the book. Yeah, I see so, a dilemma. So so yeah. But yeah. there is an option but oh. I still don't know if I'm ready for it. You don't have to give your real name. You can make up an a, a pseudonym. Pseudonym, actually. Yeah, so insane. I could have a I could have a porn star name. <laughs> <laughs>
3: So just, you got an, what, would what, what would it be?
0: What would it be? Well, I don't know. I haven't Big Mac that. or something. I don't know. I, I,
3: um, <laughs> I haven't thought that deeply, but that's what you do, isn't it? <laughs> what not it used to be the name of your first pet, and then the street you grew up in, or I can't remember. Something it was like that, something like it? that. There is a rule to it, isn't there? Yeah. So you... so that's
0: an option, but I still don't know. What do you think?
3: Because I'd still have to do it. You would have to do it, yeah. You would have to do it, and it's several. How many hours? Six hours or something? You no, the one I saw was only three hours. Oh, three. three hours. Okay. Yeah. Well, you could you could give it. You know, you could have have a try reading one at home and and see if you can. No, I, I don't think I. I don't. Could do I, it. I, <laughs> no, I, don't. I think I'd, You just start laughing. That's yeah. Probably. I know that. There's part of that, and part of it's like really
0: uncomfortable.
3: Oh, I don't know. Yeah. So I just. What does I Julie
0: think? I haven't. Uh, well, I told her I'd, I'd I'd looked at an audition yesterday and said it's fairly graphic. Mm. I said I'm not sure I'm real comfortable with that. And she didn't really say much, but no. I, I don't know. But at that stage, I hadn't worked out that I could use a pseudonym because I think yeah. that would be a problem as well. If you did get known for narrating, you've got like, oh this guy always because I pick the books yeah. that I do. They go oh this guy always picks a good book. If then. All of, what is it that Dennis Norden said? It would be like seeing Santa eating venison. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Graham Mack. As we count down the top 20 podcasts based on downloads and your recommendations at thepodcastradio.co.uk. Number 14, The Froth, with Rod Gilbert and Sean Harries. Yet yeah, the married comedians Rod and Sean, Take a spa break for the mind Far away from the depressing news cycle Here Rod and Sean and friends Take on the frothier side of life In an all-frills podcast of nonsense Number 13, Friday Night Comedy from BBC Radio 4 Your weekly dose of smug, liberal, middle-class humour From The News Quiz, The Now Show, Dead Ringers and Lobbyland Let's check back in with this week's guest. It's Ian Dale from LBC. Ian, Britain is really lagging behind most other countries in the world when it comes to the number of speech radio stations we have.
1: I've always found it really weird that in this country, LBC is really... Well, you've got talk radio now, um, and then Times Radio is starting. But in Sydney, in Australia, they've got 11 speech radio stations. Yeah.
0: Well, I started out on Why? the radio in Sydney. It, it, is is that's, you? yeah? That's where I started out. I, I was in, in music radio, and I ended up at Two Go on the Central Coast of New South Wales. But before I got into radio, I was an air conditioning engineer, and if I I found if I had an apprentice with me in the van we'd listen to a music station we'd listen to today fm or, or triple m but if i was in the van on my own it was an am talker it was john laws on two ue or it was our alan jones on two ue and then he, he's moved to two gb actually he's just quit now but the amount of speech be, radio was just is just wonderful
1: alan jones is a, is a very very big name and you say he's quit yeah well, I bet that was a national news story.
0: Absolutely. It was huge. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, Ray Hadley's still going there on 2GB. So, but, you know, even the ABC was was making a fist of it too uh, just recently. Yeah. In Sydney... And, and I and I and I came back to Britain in '97, and I was very surprised. Back then, I mean, LBC wasn't the LBC it is now, and yeah. Talk Radio was just about to become Talk Sport, or, or within a few years of that. And I couldn't work out why, you know, in every capital city, you know, Melbourne has two UW, uh, uh, not two UW, three 3A, three AW, whatever it is, and and in Adelaide the the big speech stations, but uk and london in particular where people love to talk it, it just wasn't served the same
1: well you, you look at bbc london i mean what what a disaster of a station that has been or, or ever and and, you, and i mean possibly i shouldn't say this but you've got the same station manager who's been there for 20 years and presided over listening figures that they ought to be embarrassed by in the, in the capital city and I don't understand why that is. Why can't um, what ought to be the biggest station in the capital, why can't it succeed in the way that LBC has? Uh, maybe it's got a lack of identity. It tries to do too much. I don't know, but there's something uh, very, very wrong there, and nobody seems to be willing to do anything about it.
0: Could it be something to do with the BBC's problem that it has to be, in inverted commas, neutral and balanced?
1: Absolutely nothing to do with that. If you look at some of the, the best speech radio presenters are and have been on the BBC, Stephen Nolan, absolute legend. Yeah. Brian Hayes, I mean, he probably taught yeah. me more about phoning radio than anybody else in, in, in many ways. Um, I mean, these people are masters at it. And I still don't know how Stephen Nolan votes. I wouldn't know how Brian Brian Hayes voted. Um, uh, that everyone keeps saying to me, "Oh, you really should must want to be on the BBC." And I said, "Well, no, actually, because I couldn't do what I do on the BBC. I, I, I just couldn't, and I would have to have scripts. I would have to have these lists of questions. So, yeah. apart from the glory of having a bigger audience, if you're on Radio Four or something, I mean." W- i i just couldn't do it
0: i had a small experience of it i did the breakfast show at bbc wiltshire so a very small local radio station but it was an all speech breakfast show and one of the biggest mistakes i made one day was when thames water brought in a hose pipe ban and i found out that thames water lose i forget what the figure was but it was something like the equivalent of wembley stadium worth of water every week through leaks yeah. or something and i went on the air and said look hey there's something interesting we, we had like some some time to fill us with something interesting i found out about thames water oh and all hell broke loose in my headphones you can't say that and afterwards there's a big meeting and i said why can't i say it? it's a fact it's true they're finding people for using a hosepipes um uh, hose pipes and whatever and they said why not and they said because they're not here to defend themselves and i said well wait a minute if they were there to defend could i say it and they said oh no then you'd have to say it because you you've got to challenge them so then it changed the rules. So then if there was something that was winding me up, I'd say, can we book somebody from wherever it was, BT or whatever it was? And then I could do it. So you had to just learn how to, to play the game.
1: I would be really bad at that. And I know every program, there would be some sort of incident like that. And in the end, I would be fired. I completely know that. So I've never hankered after a program. Well, I mean, I've done I have done programs for the BBC, um, just sort of one offs or documentaries, that sort of thing. Um, but I, it it wouldn't work. Um, I mean, there was a time where uh, I would have loved to have been on Five Live in its heyday um, because it was the most fantastic station. But I think ever since it's moved to Salford, it's become a shadow of its former self. Um, so the, the the appeal there just because I mean that in a sense that. At one point might have been a natural home for me because I love my sport. LBC doesn't really do sport, um, but I mean that ship has well and truly sailed and, and I look, I don't think there's anywhere where I could do what I do, so I'm, I'm very happy where I am.
0: Ian Dale catch him Monday to Thursday evenings on LBC and also the podcast for the many that he does with Jackie Smith. More from Ian Dale in a bit. At number twelve on the countdown it's 1619 from the New York Times. In August 1619, a ship carrying more than 20 enslaved Africans arrived in the English colony of Virginia. America wasn't America yet, but this was the moment it began, and no part of the country that was built was untouched by the 250 years of slavery that followed. On the 400th anniversary of this fateful moment, this podcast tells the story. At 11, it's case file, true crime, fact is stranger than fiction. Back to my special guest now, Ian Dale. He's the evening host on LBC. Ian, how did you get your start in radio?
1: Pure fluke. Um, I tried to be a member of Parliament. I fought the tw- 2005 general election, but the electorate fought back. And I, I, I nearly did it again, but I started a new business. And I thought, well, you can't really try and be a candidate and, and be successful in, in the business. So it was by the time I got back into all the selections for 2010, it was a bit too late. Um, and I decided then to give up. And I had done some radio before. Um, I, on Five Live, I was co-presenter of Sunday Service. When Andrew Pierce was off, I was his deputy. And I did about 20 of those shows with Fee Glover and Charlie Whelan. Absolutely loved it. And I kind of thought, well, somebody's going to come and snap me up now. But they didn't. Um, I did a, a programme, a monthly political books programme on One Word Radio, uh, which I really enjoyed doing. That was always pre-recorded, obviously. Um, but then BBC Four Extra came along, turned into BBC Seven, and One Word, I mean, it just crushed them. So that they went out of business. And I kind of thought that was it. And then, in 2009, Tommy Boyd rang me up. And he said, look, I'm starting a thing called PlayTalk. It's an internet speech radio station. Uh, we're based in Arundel. Would you like to do a weekly show? Um, so I did that for a few weeks. And then that went tits up. But... It, that I had done an overnight election programme for him. And it was a sort of zoo format, very different to any other thing. And we, we had about, I think, 10,000 listeners at any one time, which for an internet radio station in 2009 was pretty good. Um, uh-huh. And that, I think, reawakened my interest in trying to get into radio. And then my friend Yasmin Alamaya-Brown, the uh, political commentator, she rang me up and she said, oh, I've got an audition at LBC. I said, oh, who'd you talk to about that? I'd like to do that. And I'd been on LBC, like, during the Iraq War a lot. Um, and they were based in Hammersmith at, at that point. So I emailed Jonathan Richards, who was running it. He knew who I was from my political blog. So he said, well, why don't you come and do an audition with Yasmin? So he came and did a sort of 20-minute fake programme where the producers tend to be callers. And it was, shall we say, not good. And yasmin is brilliant as a commentator and a pundit but she wasn't should we say so hot on the radio bits going up to a junction teasing ahead that sort of thing so three weeks later they rang me up and said oh petrie hoskins off tonight she's ill would you like to come and cover for her and i said oh with yasmin and they said no just you so that was a bit awkward um, but we are still on great speaking terms and she comes on my programme, so there's no hard feelings on, on her part, I don't think. Um, and so I did some cover shows, Petri then uh, was off for a month in the summer, so I covered her for a whole month. And that's so important, particularly when you've got no background in radio and you really are learning from every programme. To have that series of 20 programmes, it wasn't just one programme here, one programme there. It was a a succession of them. And I knew it was going well. Everyone was telling me, oh, it's a really good list and we love you, blah, blah, blah. And I thought they might offer me a weekend show. They ended up offering me Petri Hoskins' show. She was moving to the afternoons. But I've, I thought, how can I do this? I've got a full-time job running a publishing company. How can I do that and a daily radio show? But I did. Um, and I, I did give up the publishing a couple of years ago. Um, but I've had the time of my life. I've been there 10 years now and absolutely love it.
0: You mentioned things like teasing ahead. Did you learn that from Tommy? Was was, was did Tommy help? Because if you're brand new to radio, that that kind of thing can be a bit awkward, re- having to be reminded that there's somebody new listening all the time. You know, a lot of people come from TV yeah. and they'll they'll you know they'll talk about something that they started talking about an hour ago, and a new listener, all, all those kind of things. Where did you pick that up from?
1: It was partly Tommy taught me the basics, but Chris Lowry, who had been at LBC, well, when he left in 2015, I think he'd been there 25 years. A real sort of staple of the station one of the people who's mostly behind the scenes but he uh, he he used to read the weather and do a a few bits on air but generally behind the scenes and he did all the imaging and he was a really big support to me um over the first five years and I learned so much from him and um I mean the teasing ahead I mean it's still something that you kind of have to be reminded to do a little bit um I mean I had a sort of email the other day because Obviously I I do I record a twenty second or thirty second trail to go in Nigel Farage's programme at six forty five. And I think one of them I had told I'd said, Oh, we've got um, our top lawyer on at nine o'clock to take your calls and they said, Why on earth are you teasing ahead to nine o'clock? You just need to get the people listening past seven o'clock. Just tell them what you're doing past seven o'clock, which after 10 years, you kind of think, well, I probably should have known that. So you're still learning all the time. There's not a day goes by when something happens and you think, oh, that's good. I'll put store that in the back of my head.
0: Yeah, the best advice I heard for teasing ahead about, you know, how, how far ahead do you tease something? It's like, if you've got something massive, you can tease that a long way ahead. And, and the phrase came from, from radio consultant Dan O'Day in California. And he said, uh, the bigger the bang, the longer the fuse.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think that yeah. is true. But you see, if you look at the stats, uh, you see the average listening time maybe is 20 minutes. Um, you kind of want to extend that listening time, so I can see why they say we'll just t- just keep them on after the next yeah. break. That's that's really the goal. But there are quite a lot of people who listen, particularly to LBC, 24 hours, well, not 24 hours, but sort of most of the day. That They're not yeah. just there for a 20-minute burst at breakfast or drive. And I particularly think in the evenings, you've got loyal listeners in the evenings in a way that maybe at drive time, they do dip in and out a bit more. And if you look at our average listening time over the week, an average LBC listener lists for, listens for about 11 hours a week. That is massive.
0: Yeah, I mean, most stations would be happy with like seven hours a week. Ian Dale from LBC and the podcast that he does with Jackie Smith, which is called For the Many. I'm Graham Mack. This is The Pod 20, the countdown of the top 20 podcasts based on downloads and your recommendations at thepodcastradio.co.uk. Number 10 this week, The Infinite Monkey Cage, a witty, irreverent look at the world through scientists' eyes with Brian Cox and Robin Ince. Number nine is Happy Place. Fern Cotton talks to incredible people about life, love, loss and everything in between and she reveals what happiness means to them. Number eight is the Michael Harrison Rap with Michael Harrison. You can hear this podcast on podcast radio, 8am and 4pm on Saturdays. Michael is the publisher of Talkers magazine, which is the bible of talk radio in
5: the usa michael you've been spending lockdown in florida why is that well i have two homes i have a um, a home in massachusetts which is my headquarters and that's the headquarters of uh, talkers and uh, all of our programs uh, we have people around the country but most of our core uh, staff and uh, editors are in Western Massachusetts, and that's where I live most of the year. But I have a place down in Florida, uh, on the east coast of Florida, in Jupiter. I was supposed to be here for only a couple of months, but uh, we're in isolation, and at this point, I'm fully equipped. We have, uh, I'm, I'm in my palatial closet studio and (laughs) um, you know i I moved for this uh, major broadcasting event i moved all of our clothes hanging on both sides of me aside makes for great acoustics for radio broadcasting i have to tell you i sound better on the air in this closet than in our fully padded studio uh, back in massachusetts but that's why i'm here and i'll uh, you know uh, who wants to fly and who wants to drive at this point when you know, everybody's in isolation. We don't know how long that's going to last. We might be coming out of it, but that's kind of rolling the dice uh, in terms of whether it'll be successful. So we're here indefinitely. Can you give us just a bit of history of Michael Harrison? Oh that's going that goes all the way back to Marconi even before <laughs> you know I, I i i was in media back in the days when the artists used to paint dinosaurs or well they were not <laughs> dinosaurs but you know uh the uh the woolly mammoths on the caves on the walls of caves now uh I go back to the sixties believe it or not i was uh in radio i'm in radio now for fifty two fifty three years and um uh, Obviously, I love the uh, the business and I love the art form. Uh, I have been in my career a, um, a rock jock. I was very involved in the early days of what was called underground album rock radio. Uh, worked as a, um, a DJ on some of the biggest radio stations in the United States.
0: Didn't you coin the phrase AOR?
5: I coined the phrase AOR. I was the first uh, program director to actually use it to describe the format. That I was programming. I did that when I was uh, in San Diego at KPRI, and I was also at that same time the managing editor of Radio and Records, a a major trade publication that no longer exists, but um, was around for over 40 years. And uh, so between uh, my programming in San Diego, that was after I had been on the air in New York and progressive uh, rock radio, Uh, I came up with the idea of AOR. And uh, and did it in San Diego and wrote about it in R&R, and it became all the rage in the United States and, and still exists. The, the remnants of AOR radio uh, is now called classic rock. It's not as dynamic and as um, culturally cutting edge as the kind of radio that we did. You know, it's Steve Miller's jet airliner every three hours, but uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's certainly uh, still a big format. So you ended up at Talkers. Okay, I'll get back to the story. I, I, I left you hanging yeah, there. I'm trying to join the dots here. Well, I've had multiple careers. I've never had one job that defined me. For long stretches in my career, a radio show uh, in a local radio station, consulting radio stations um, or the station that I would have a show on. Acting as program director, uh, in many cases, at major market radio stations. I was the PD at four major market radio stations, WLIR, um, KMET, KPRI uh, in San Diego, KMET in Los Angeles, WZLX in Boston. I I don't want to get bogged down in the weeds of my career here, but I'll I'll try to be as quick as I can. Um, So I was also in the trade business, the trade publication business, going all the way back To Radio and Records in the 70s during those early AOR days. I left Radio and Records while I was on the air at KMET in Los Angeles. I started a trade publication called Good Phone Weekly, which was a a sort of a um, futuristic um, trade magazine. For people in rock radio, that was warning, hurry, get your act together. The 80s are coming. It's no longer the 60s. The 80s are coming. So I was the first person in radio to predict the 80s would come. (laughs) (laughs) But well, back in the 70s, we were so hung up on the 60s that all of a sudden, by the late 70s, it became obvious, wait a second, we're almost in the 80s, and back in the 20th century, <laughs> back in the 20th <laughs> century, the 80s always had a very modernistic feel to them. 1984, the you know the 80s was very futuristic, and here we were, it's almost, you know, we're closer to 1984 than we are to 1967. Those were the kinds of things we talked about, and then 1984 came and went, and then it became 2000. That marked, you know, the future. It's really hard to uh, to use a cliche, wrap my brain around the idea that it's 2020 (laughs) that we are, you know, in the third decade of the 21st century. And I'm still still involved in cutting-edge media. You know, I would be so successful if I traded in on my nostalgia roots, you know, oldie shows and things of that nature. But I, you know, I I just can't get behind that right now there's so much exciting things happening so that's basically been my career i started talkers magazine i i I was the editorial radio columnist for a couple of years for billboard after i sold good phone weekly to them and uh, then i left billboard and produced syndicated programs uh, for all the networks i i was syndicated i had a number of syndicated shows in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s actually and uh, started Talkers magazine in 1990 ahead of the curve in terms of the talk radio phenomenon of the 90s and beyond and uh, and here we are today Talkers is uh, in its 30th year uh, we've done 23 annual, con- 22 annual conventions. The, t- the 23rd one was postponed because of the obvious, and uh, we've rescheduled it for October, and we're not sure if we're going to be able to do it then. So right now, everything is up in the air, but um, I'm sitting on top of a, a, a long history in uh, the radio trade publishing business, the radio station programming business, uh, the radio uh, program production business, and... Um, Uh, consulting and and various and sundry other projects. I'm not going to tell you any more because, as I said, I've just done a lot of stuff. And the stuff
0: you're doing right now is the Michael Harrison Rap, which you can hear on podcast radio 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. on Saturdays. And the podcast is at number 8 on this week's Pod 20. Number 7 is that Peter Crouch podcast. Peter Crouch, Tom Fordyce and Chris Stark bring you their guide to being a professional footballer. At number six, For The Many, the podcast hosted by Ian Dale from LBC and Jackie Smith, the Labour politician and former Home Secretary. How does that work, Ian? You come from opposite sides of the political spectrum.
1: Yes, we do, although there is a bit of crossover because she's about as right-wing as you can get for a Labour supporter. And I have my, shall we say, wet lettuce edges uh, on the right. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, I, I'm sort of much more pro-immigration than I think she is. I mean, she had this reputation when she was Home Secretary as Jack Boots Jackie, very authoritarian. Whereas I'm quite into civil liberties. So, um, but we can disagree. I think the p- reason why people like the partnership is that we don't have rows. We can disagree with each other politely. We have constructive debates. Uh, we have a lot of laughs, and um, I think people like that. They're just fed up with the adversarial nature of politics in, in some ways.
0: Yeah, there's a, sometimes there's an adversarial nature on uh, spoken word radio, or shall we say, phone-in radio. I don't know what you. I don't want to call it talk radio because that's the name of an actual station yeah. who is a competitor. So, I, I, but anyway, there you go. I've said it now. Um, but often, you know, hosts and callers and guests it c- can can get into it, and I've noticed when you do that, you will disagree with them. And I think I can see in the, the video versions of it, you actually look like you're getting angry, but you amazingly managed to stay calm. How is that feat achieved?
1: <laughs> well, there, there, there are two sources. Let's call it speech radio, shall we? Um, okay, yeah, speech radio. Th- if you want to be a lazy speech radio presenter... Every day you do phone ins on immigration, benefits, abortion, homosexuality, crime. We all know the touchstone subjects death subject. penalty. Death yeah. penalty. If you want to be a presenter that challenges not just the listeners, but yourself, you do subjects from time to time that are way outside your comfort zone. And you start the phone in by thinking, God, am I actually going to get any callers on this? And of course, that's the nightmare for any presenter because it's then just you and the microphone. And certainly in my early days on LBC, bearing in mind I had no training for this at all, If there wasn't a phone call on the switchboard, you start to panic. And when you start to panic, your brain starts working overtime, your mouth starts working overtime, and you gabble. What I've learned is that if that ever happened, I mean, it doesn't really happen now because we've gone national and the listenership has gone up so much, but um, that if it does happen just slow down and the the thoughts then translate from your brain to your mouth in a much more constructive way. You start to widen out the subject a little bit until you sort of hook that fish and you see someone um, on the board. So for example, I remember, I I can't remember what the the news hook was, but I said to my producer one day, and this was years ago, let's do a phone-in on male rape, i.e. male-to-male rape. And she said, you sure? And I said, well, It's a thing, clearly, so let's see what the listeners have got to say. And she said, OK, well, be it on your own head. Within five minutes, we had a full switchboard. Now, that um, was something I wasn't expecting because on a subject like that, you only need four or five calls to for people who want to tell their stories. And you, you, it's not a two-minute call. You have to let them tell their stories. So I don't really specialise in adversarial phone-ins. But if somebody says something that is really stupid or offensive or whatever, yeah, I'll, I'll take them on. And I have had quite a few of those. But if all yeah. you do is shout at your callers, it's a really difficult listen, I think. If you do it once a week or once a month, people then sit up and take notice and say, oh, what's got into him? He's normally really calm and placid. And so, again, they take notice of what you're you're saying in a way that they might not otherwise have done. So I'm quite happy to have a Barney with somebody, um, but I don't do it as routine.
0: Yeah, and you you do it in a very, very calm way. And and what I like is if you're going to take them down, you usually take them down with facts with cold hard facts truths and figures what is your process of research when you go into an interview when you know you've got a politician on that's going to be spouting something about funding or, or whatever the hell it is that they think they can is going to get funded and you know that they haven't done the sums or what is your process of? because that's how you beat them is by knowing more than them
1: my process is being alive for 58 years um that that is why somebody of my age i think is much more equipped to do a phone-in program than somebody who's 25 because whatever some, whatever a caller says to me on whatever subject i've generally got some kind of anecdote to tell or i've got some sort of experience or i know somebody who's been through the same thing um i don't i mean this is a, a horrific thing to say I I interviewed Andrew Marr yesterday for an hour for my All Talk podcast, and I I reminded him of a programme that we were on together with Amal Rajan, the um, the media show on Radio 4, and it was all about the art of the political interview. And Amal said to me, well, how do you prepare to interview a politician? Sort of how much research do you do? And I, I thought, should I tell the truth? And I did tell the truth, and I said, virtually none. Because for me... And this is where self-knowledge really helps. And I don't think you get full self-knowledge until you get to about 50. For me, if I have a lot of papers in front of me, if I have lists of questions, um, I freeze. I I don't operate in my normal way. Because to me, an interview is not really an opportunity for a grilling, it's a conversation. Because you get more out of people if you just talk to them in a normal conversation. Um, I mean, if you were saying to me now, Ian Dale, how dare you talk to that caller like that on the 23rd of June 2014? I was appalled. Instantly, my defences go up and you'll get a pretty anodyne answer. Whereas if we just have a normal routine conversation, you get more out of people. Now, I might have five or six bullet points in front of me, sort of subject areas that I want to cover because you can easily run out of time and haven't covered all you want to cover. But that is about it. Even if it's the prime minister, I don't, I have done this. I mean, because producers, obviously, they, they want to prepare you as they should do. But every time I've done it, it hasn't really worked. You don't get that news line. And, and you have some scary moments because if you're interviewing, I mean, I remember interviewing um, Theresa May once for half an hour and I hadn't got anything out of her. She's a very difficult politician to interview but, miraculously, at minute 28, suddenly she comes out with something because by that time she'd run out of all the sound bites, all the normal things that she says, so she had to think on her feet a bit. And, and that's why the long-form interview, I think, is coming back, in, and that's where podcasts are brilliant, because you, you've got the time. You don't have a time limit. And I remember I was told when we started For the Many, oh, 20 minutes is about right for a podcast. And I said, Really? I don't think so. So we gradually upped it to sometimes we do nearly two hours now. I've never had a single complaint from a listener on a podcast saying, oh, my God, it's far too long. And you you can actually track when people switch off, if they last the course. And we are in the 90% for lasting the course, which is not bad when all the podcasts are at least an hour, generally an hour and a half and sometimes longer than that. And I think that's reflecting in now in radio as well where I I do longer form interviews on my radio show if you do a drive time show when I was on drive you can't do that it's got to be fast paced or you can do it occasionally if you've got a really big name but um that that's why even though I mean when Eddie Mayer came in and I moved to the evenings um I didn't really because I'd done the evenings before I, I wasn't wholly thinking that was going to be something that I would enjoy doing again but it in the end it's proved to be um, a bit of a renaissance for me because I, I can do my own format. I can do interviews for as more or less as long as I want and um and we've had all this breaking news during my time slot with all the brexit debates and everything so it's been absolutely brilliant and i'm having the time of my life
0: ian dale and the podcast he does with jackie smith is called for the many it's at number six this week on the pod 20 at number five no such thing as a fish a podcast from the writers of qi they huddle around a microphone and discuss the best things they've found out this week at four it's desert island discs And this week's castaway is the racehorse trainer, Mark Johnston. Number three, Clear and Vivid with Alan Alda. Alan, you became famous when you played Hawkeye Pierce on MASH. How did you stay so grounded when you became rich and world famous?
6: I I don't, I don't, I hope I'm grounded. I, I took myself with me. I, for a long time, I had never gotten over the fact that my wife and I, as we were bringing up our kids, really had to watch every penny. When I drove a cab, because I couldn't find acting jobs, I'd come home with $20 or so from a night's work and at four in the morning, and I'd lay it on the counter. And the next morning, Arlene had put $2 in an envelope for rent, $2 in an envelope for food, and about five or six envelopes like that. And we we were literally hand to mouth and years later when I was playing starring roles on Broadway at dinner if I needed a new pair of pants I would announce to my family to my wife and daughters who were around eight six years old I'd say I think I have to buy a new pair of pants and the little girls would look up at me like why are you telling me (laughs) But, but I I still felt like I, you know, like I had to watch every penny. So I, I, I brought m- m- my feelings of th- the awareness of uh, kind of plain things in life with me to as much as I could. And you have a thing called face blindness. Is that true? Yeah, it's a condition. It's a brain thing. There's a little part of the brain that's devoted to recognizing faces, and some people have a defect in that. Sometimes it's very severe. Mine is midway. But I could have dinner with somebody for three hours and the de- next day not recognize them on the street. <clears throat> My own daughter, one of our daughters, once had changed the color of her hair and once was wearing a cap. And both times I didn't know who she was. Wow. So maybe maybe it's more severe than I <laughs> And I think I have to – I'm always explaining to people that I have it because I know I'm offending some people by not recognizing them. Yeah, yeah.
0: Can you have a shave with an electric razor without a mirror?
6: (laughs) I do recognize my own face. (laughs) Right. Famous uh, neuroscientist whose name escapes me at the moment had a beard and was primping his beard in the mirror at a restaurant – He thought it was a mirror, but it was glass between him and the booth next door. And he was looking at a guy who also had a beard. And he didn't know it wasn't his face. (laughs) Now, that's pretty severe. He really didn't know.
0: So when you became famous and everything changed, is that when you decided you weren't going to? Because I heard you don't like to give autographs. You'd rather shake someone's hand.
6: Yeah, it, 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 when MASH hit, it hit so big that it was hard to walk down the street. It was very, it was a difficult experience. And one time I was, I went to see a play on Broadway. And I mean, it was, of course, a compliment, but it was hard to cope with. There was a line all the way down the aisle to my seat people asking you know waiting for an autograph and finally one of the ushers came over and said do you mind if we start the play now and I said for God's sake start the play (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean you know so I realized that the only way I could handle that would be to offer to shake hands which I still do and I but now nobody wants an autograph they want to take a picture they want a selfie do you post with the selfie if it's a policeman, a person in the armed forces, a waiter or a waitress or a, st- a stewardess or steward on a plane, but otherwise, I sh- try to shake hands.
0: Yeah, I I interviewed John Cleese at his office in Chelsea, and and I, he won't, he will not pose for a, a selfie, and he wouldn't even pose for one with me. He he would let his <laughs> he would let his assistant take a picture of the two of us, but he wouldn't let me do the selfie because he thought. Because the lens is too wide and it's too close, he doesn't look good. <laughs>
6: so, Oh, that's interesting. No, I don't have that problem. I don't look good no matter how you photograph
0: No, me. you're looking pretty good. So I'm, I'm okay. How old a guy are you now, Alan? 84. 84.
6: And uh, recently diagnosed with Parkinson's? Actually, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's five years ago. Okay. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, by the time you show symptoms, about 80% of your... Neurons that produce dopamine have have been killed, seventy or eighty percent. So I had it for quite a while before I was diagnosed, but I'm holding off the worst of the symptoms because I'm following uh, an exercise regimen and I'm taking medications. And I just take it just takes me extra time to get through the day because I have this extra part time job of coping with that disease. But I. I really uh, encourage other people who I meet or who I hear about who've just been diagnosed with this problem, I, I really try to let them know your life is not over. It's not, you don't have to get depressed or frantic or deny you've got it. I now have one friend who I think is denying he has it. And the, if you just face it head on, like a, a reality, a fact, I think reality is our friend. And if you just face it and do something about it, keep moving, work up a sweat, get, do exercises to retain I box, and it, it, uh, I don't actually box. I take boxing lessons. Yeah. Nobody hits me. <laughs> right. <laughs> I yeah. want to make that clear, and I don't try to hit anybody else.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what were the first signs that, that something wasn't quite right then that made you go and get checked?
6: I was acting out my dreams which is a not very well known symptom. And as for example, I was dreaming that someone was attacking me and I threw a sack of potatoes at the person and in reality what I was doing was throwing a pillow at my wife. So I had I read in the paper that that kind of uh, experiences can be a symptom in many cases for Parkinson's. So I, I went to a doctor and asked for a, a brain scan. And he gave me the usual examination and said, I don't know why you want to scan. You don't have Parkinson's. I said, I think I have it. So I'd really like to know if I have it because I want to do something about it. And he gave me a scan. And he called me back and said, oh, you really got it. And what's been the
0: biggest challenge then dealing with Parkinson's or playing a Republican on the West Wing?
6: <laughs> you know, people, it's so funny. People, so many people have said to me, you know, because I was, I, 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 you know, when I, when I was active politically 30 years ago or more, uh, I was a big champion of the Equal Rights Amendment and worked very hard on that. I, I campaigned for a couple of Democrats for, for president. So people have said to me, "Was it hard to be a Republican?" And I, I and I, I, I can I just can't understand it. There, it's nobody asked me that. Did, did nobody ever said, "Was it hard to play a murderer?" <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's we're we're all people. You got that's the the whole point of getting up on the stage and putting on plays was to show one another the humanity that we all share. Right.
0: It's Alan Alda The podcast is called Clear and Vivid It's number 3 on the podcast radio chart this week The pod 20 You can catch Clear and Vivid At 11am and 6pm weekdays On podcast radio Number 2 this week Shagged, married, annoyed The only way Rosie and Chris Ramsey Can have a conversation without being interrupted By a toddler or ending up staring at their phones Is by doing a podcast And number 1 again this week Grounded with Louis Theroux. His latest guest is Gail Porter. That's it for episode 9 of the Pod 20 on Podcast Radio. I'm Graham Mack, and thanks to this week's guest podcasters, Ian Dale, Piper Terrett, Sean Williamson, Alan Alda, and Michael Harrison. If you'd like to watch extended Zoom chats with all of my guests, check them out on YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. My guest next week is the multi-award-winning broadcaster and member of the Radio Hall of Fame, Ross Williams. He's reunited with his old Virgin Radio breakfast show host, Jonathan Coleman, for the Ross and Jono podcast. Let's talk about you, Ross. Now, do, do we have to? <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. Okay. And when I first moved back to Britain in 1997, uh, my parents emigrated to New Zealand when I was mm-hmm. 18. And I moved back in 1997 to come and work for a radio station on the south coast 2 CRFM in Bournemouth. And we arrived at the airport, Julie and I, we rented a car. We got in the car and drove to Bournemouth from Heathrow. And Virgin Radio was already tuned in on the, radio, on the car radio. It was Dude. breakfast time, ah. and it was Ross and Jono. So you yeah. were one of the first two voices I heard on British radio after being away for so long, and now I was coming to yeah. to present on a radio station, and I wanted to know all about British radio. There was no internet radio to speak of back then, so you couldn't hear Virgin living in Australia, where you, you can now. And there they were, Russ and Jono. And I just thought it was fab. And that oh, was one, such a thrill for me, yeah. personally, 20 years later or whenever it was, to hire you and Jono yeah, to present right, on Fix Radio. So it just came yes. full circle. So yeah, I know. That, that show was something. What was the key to making that show so good? Five years you did on Breakfast with Jono. Uh, but, but nearly six. Right. Uh,
2: I think it, it was
0: a chemistry. That's
2: We knew uh, what each other was thinking, how we were going to do things, and we still do, as you know, having been our boss up until fairly recently on a fixed radio, everything becomes slightly second nature. So, of course, you have a, a planning meeting before the show. But um, once we say, right, we'll do this, we'll do that, it, you know, both of us know exactly pretty much which contribution to that particular segment or discussion we're, we're going to make. And and then we would both hold back stuff that we would never talk about in the meeting and fire it in for that extra bit of chemistry and oh, the genuine uh, some, most of the, yeah most of the time it worked um some of the time it didn't work but i think our <laughs> listeners were pretty forgiving really because um, we were just a couple of guys getting up early in the morning and in, in it has to be said graham in an environment and a society that was different to today a lot of the stuff that we did back then uh, and we did have stuff even then um, taken off the air before it could even see the light of day. Um, we couldn't do now. Uh, having said that, I think we pushed it a little bit to the limit on Fix, which was just brilliant fun. We, we did it for about a year, I think, uh, thanks to you. And um, it, it, it was excellent. And we'll do it again, I'm sure. Although, uh, you know, life Tends to take over, but it's so easy with the technology. Look at us now having a chat on Zoom and yeah. and um, with the radio technology that is available that we use for the show on Fix, for example. Um, it's it's cheap. It was it's chips, it, and it works. And I use it, funny enough, on Talk Talksport um, when I'm doing programs.
0: For, for anyone that didn't know, we should say that that you were in London in our studios in London, and Jono yes, was, was, was in a studio in Sydney.
2: That's right. And <laughs> Most people the, couldn't tell. There was No, exactly. There was the tiniest, the tiniest delay that you just really couldn't hear. And uh, we had all the old features, you know, dumb crime of the day, sad but true, Edward and Shanker, the wayward newsreaders. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> um, yeah, we just brought everything back because, once again, why reinvent the wheel, really? Um, as you know, we had guests on um all sorts of guests came on the show. It was a shame that we didn't keep it going for a while, but you know, hey, that showbiz. That showbiz. don't know who? But it was great fun.
0: Ross Williams, my special guest next week on the Pod Twenty. And what will happen on the chart next week? Will Louis Theroux stay at number one, or will he be knocked off like he was two weeks ago? Will your favorite podcast be at the top of the charts? Find out with me, Graham Mack, and influence the chart by making a recommendation at thepodcastradio.co.uk.
5: On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America.